Hello from Austin and welcome to episode 63 of the National Security Law Podcast brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. It's spring break. Spring break, what are we doing here? Uh, well, for us, it's not really spring break because we're trying that stupid thing again where we record on Friday and release on Monday. Is this another time capsule episode? So, you know, I was pretty close last week. Yeah, that was actually, that was pretty good. I mean, you I know, Gary Gary Cohen did not resign um, <laughs> as the the head of the National Economic Council until Tuesday. You were off by a day? I was off by a day. That's not bad. So so I'm trying to think what kind of, so you know what, you know what's going to be out by Monday? Uh, the NCAA tournament bracket. Oh, okay, that'll that'll offer us some predictive so, so, opportunities. So, so by the time folks are, are hearing the the dulcet dulcet tones of our voices, um, we'll <laughs> we'll we'll know who's in and who's out, and whether the Longhorns somehow back their way into one of those eleven seeds. We ought to we ought to auto tune our voices on this show. <laughs> um, so today is uh, let's see, it's Friday, March 9th, when as we're we record. This. Yes, it's the morning, nine thirty Central Time. And, and I have a bad feeling that unlike last week, we're not going to get away with it this week. But there's going to be just all kinds of stuff. It, it feels like one of those Fridays to me. You know, it feels like to me, because we're heading into spring break, that surely everybody else is like, you know, packing up the car and getting ready to drive their family somewhere. That is probably not actually how the uh, the news cycle is going to treat it. Well, you know, uh, is is Sam Nunberg packing up his car and driving over to the, the <laughs> I mean, I, by all accounts, as we're recording this, he is actually in the federal courthouse in D.C. Boy, that didn't take long. That did not take long. All right. All right so we're going to talk um, a little bit today about some developments in the Mueller investigation, or at least developments as of Friday morning, March 9th. Um, we also, I think one of the most interesting developments in national security law land this week was Carol Rosenberg breaking the sort of big scoop about the underlying problem that caused the ethics kerfuffle in the Nashiri Guantanamo Military Commission. Turns out, microphones. Microphones. I'm shocked. Bobby, are you shocked? Is this microphone on right here? I think yeah. I think these microphones are not legacy microphones. These are not legacy microphones. So we'll talk about what that means. Um, there's a couple of things to update in your and my favorite running national security law issue, Doe versus Mattis. Uh, you have a really long post up Friday morning about the merits. We also have learned the composition of the D.C. Circuit panel is going to hear the transfer issue on April 5th, so there's stuff there. We might, if we time permits, segue from that to a brief discussion of the political question doctrine in foreign affairs. It's on my mind because there was a panel... Wednesday afternoon at the D.C. Circuit, um, where I got to sort of uh, sit around and listen to some smart people talk about the political That's question great. doctrine. Um, I think we might hold off on the Yemen resolution probably till till after spring break. But So this is the idea that uh, the week before we were speculating yep. about a bill that was probably going to be introduced. Now there's a bill. And it's a li- it's slightly different than some of the uh, the elements that had been previewed. Um, so I think I think we might save the real discussion of that for for our next episode. That sounds good. Let's keep this a short, sweet episode. Well, but we have some frivolity, which is you know even though we have no idea what the NCAA tournament bracket's going to look like, I figured <laughs> that all the more reason to make some crazy, <laughs> way too early Final Four predictions. I would have picked like four teams, two of which won't even be in the tournament. And Middle the Tennessee will be in the same State, um, exactly. <laughs> so all right, so why don't we just dive in, Bobby Bob Mueller? Interesting stuff. Uh, yeah, you know this. I, I gotta say, there's to me the most interesting aspect of the Nunberg uh, fiasco that went down a few days ago was maybe the journalistic ethics of continuing to roll that guy out on TV, mm-hmm. uh, where it did appear that there's something terribly wrong with this fellow. Now, maybe that's not fair. Maybe it's just nope. He, he is a uh, he was competent at the time and chose to. Uh, do and say what he did, but um, it, it really raises the question about competence. And at what point should a producer say, "Okay, hold on, we, we've got to we've got to stop what's going on here." It's ratings gold. I get it. The market force compels it, but uh, 
I mean, what was your assessment of what was going on with this guy? I mean, well, I, I think he had. I, I think he he had perhaps visited a couple of bars on his way to the to the TV studio. Um, I, listen, I, I think there's a there's an interesting story to have about the journalistic ethics. I, I think the other piece of this, though, is you know you could see sort of flashes of the the anti Mueller hostility, um, right? As sort of bubbling to the surface in ways that we don't usually see it, right? Which is, you know, screw that guy. Um, and I think what what, so, what what got what got missed by Nunberg until he actually talked to a lawyer um, is that subpoenas aren't Mueller, right? Subpoenas are the grand jury. The grand jury. And that's, I, I think that's meaningfully different, right? I mean, that is that is not thumbing your nose at, you know, the, the guy who is being, you know, who, who the, the sort of right wing is trying to marginalize and, and call and calls integrity into question. That's thumbing your nose at the judicial process. Well, in court, the, what lurks beneath the surface of that is, can these two really be distinguished? No, I mean, the whole, obviously, the, the effort to delegitimize Mueller uh, requires uh indirectly taking on the entire judicial process. The whole idea is to try to separate the two as if he's somehow different and politicized in a way that's not the normal process. But the fact is, he's got the powers of a prosecutor and he has got a grand jury and they're proceeding with an investigation. It's an actual DOJ and FBI investigation and you're no more able to flout it because you don't like the person right. or the ideology or whatever you think's going on with the people behind it here than if you were a, a narcotics defendant who didn't who thought that people were, you know, inappropriately pressing narcotics enforcement. Yeah. It, it doesn't really matter. You got a subpoena, you so, got a show. So we'll see, I mean, we'll see if, you know, we'll see what comes of Nunberg's grand jury testimony. I think, you know, part of the suspicion is that he actually might have some interesting things to tell yeah. to the grand jury. So this leads to, you know, sort of second layer conspiracy theories about this is sort of an, an effort to almost delegitimize himself by calling into account his own competence. Anything he later on might say that's damaging has to be viewed against the, the backdrop of, well, this guy's, you know. You know I, know, I know there's this tendency to sort of think that there are folks in this process who are playing multidimensional chess. Right, right. Nobody is. I just don't believe Bob Mueller. I was going to say, I think the only person, the only Vulcan in the room is Bob Mueller. <laughs> the only... That, the only Vulcan in the room is Bob Mueller. Sounds like a uh, episode title. title. Yeah. yeah, seriously. All right. Um, but also, I mean, I, this is sort of a little bit further afield, but I, I couldn't help but say a couple words about this. The big story that was, the, the, you know, of the week vis-a-vis -vis the Mueller investigation is all the stuff about the Seychelles that meeting. Is, that is further afield. It, it is further afield and, and, and farther afield. Indeed, yes. Further um, and farther. <laughs> Um, nice. Thank you. Um, by the way, we should write down that that episode title, right? Bob Mueller is the only Vulcan in the room. I'll, I'll try to do that while you're talking. <laughs> Go for so, it. So um, <laughs> this is we just take turns. All right. So the, the Seychelles meeting, just for folks who haven't been paying attention um, or just don't have any idea what I'm talking about. So this is this January 2017 meeting between um, Eric Prince who is the founder of Blackwater, obviously one of the most important and largest private military contractors in the United States, um, and these sort of senior Russian corporate guys with close ties to Putin and the Kremlin. Um, and there's been some suggestion that this meeting was an attempt to set up a backdoor, really, Bobby, days, weeks before the inauguration um, between the White House and the Kremlin. Of course, we know about Jared Kushner's ill-fated effort to set up a communications back channel. Um, and here's what's interesting. What's interesting is Eric Prince testified under oath about this before Congress last year and said, no, it was a fortuitous meeting. It was an accident. I just happened to be hanging out at the Seychelles, bumped as, into the sky. As one does. As one does. I, I, I can't say I've ever done it, but, you know, when <laughs> you, one you is— You've been to Guam? Well, yeah, but I don't have a private plane. Yeah. Anyway, um, 
the I think it was the Washington Post, a couple other media outlets reported this week that Mueller now has testimony from uh, a couple of witnesses um, contradicting Eric Prince and suggesting that the meeting actually was planned, was orchestrated, was part of this larger effort. Not clear to what extent folks close to the president and at the you know inner circles of the campaign were involved, but that Eric Prince at least. Um, suddenly he's got some vulnerability. Suddenly he has some serious vulnerability vis-a-vis um, perjury and lying to Congress. So, it, it, you know, yet another example of how it's the cover-ups that in, end up ensnaring people. Uh, what's interesting about that, I suppose, is that if Prince actually has real legal jeopardy and can be brought under pressure to begin cooperating, I think there's really, I think it's fair to say there is no telling. It, it may have. It may have nothing to do with sort of Trump campaign, Russian interference stuff. Who, who knows what kind yeah. of beans might spill out of that bucket? But I mean, I will say, but the sort of insofar as there is, so, so it seems like there are two different stories here. One is Eric Prince now all of a sudden I think is in a lot of trouble. Um, two is if Mueller has significant testimony from multiple witnesses corroborating the idea that there was this coordinated effort to set up a back channel right before the inauguration, I have to think that that's going to be inconsistent with what other people have told Mueller. Right. There's a sort of a daisy chain effect Correct. Right here. Um, and one last point just before we get off of this. It also, I think, Bobby, brings back into the story a piece that some folks have been trying to tell for a while, but that I think hasn't gone largely unnoticed, which is the role of the United Arab Emirates in this conversation, mm-hmm. right, that this is not just about Russia. Right. This is actually about more general concerns about foreign influence peddling right. in the Trump administration. We used to talk about this more early on when we talked to, uh, when Flynn was still yep, in the exactly. story. Uh, you know, and we, Turkey. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, there's, there's, there, it's not, and, and this is where I think it is, it is right to resist the urge to have everything seem like Russia's this, um, you know, dominant theme in the conversation. Brooding omnipresence. Right, right, right. It's, it's, it's in some ways more prosaic than that. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's pettier. And it's more widespread. That doesn't make it better or worse, but it's just different. All right. Um, so that's our, our Mueller time update. Mueller time. Mueller Although time. I, something tells me that there might be some Mueller time later today, but we'll see if that prediction holds. Okay. Uh, what about another recurring theme? Of oh, I was going to say, speaking of, speaking of surreptitious meetings. <laughs> surreptitious, nice. Uh, and, 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 of course, here we are sitting across these microphones. Apparently, are they we're on? the only ones. Uh, this, mine, mine's got a light. Yeah, mine's got a light, too. All right. So we have, for a long time long now, time. every week, we're tracking the military commission saga as it unfolds. And one of the things we've been closely following is the, uh, the collapse of progress in the Nashiri prosecution, uh, which... Has many problems, but the the ur problem we've been dealing with or tracking ur problem well like played. That? Thank you. Uh, begins when the defense team uh, renews concerns about uh, monitoring of attorney-client communications, and then eventually withdraws, mostly withdraws from the case, and that sets off this chain of events that we've been describing as sort of a seven-layer dip of procedural and substantive issues that culminates at at uh, well, there's there's a I'm not sure what layer it is, but maybe the fifth or sixth layer was when Judge Spath said, all right, I'm out. This is the the Spath mic drop. I'm abating the proceedings. Now there's this further layer on top of that where there's litigation over whether you can have interlocutory review of the abatement of proceeding. But let's not lose sight of the fact that the underlying issue, the foundation of the dip, is this question of was there, in fact, monitoring of attorney-client, surreptitious monitoring by the government 
of the defense team's attorney-client communications. And, and one of the things that we've both been frustrated by is that with each additional procedural layer that gets draped on top of this, we seem to be getting ever farther from actually resolving the core issue. Was there an ethics problem here? Um, Steve, what's the news? We, we got this little glimpse or a glimmer of, of, of factual insight into the original layer. So Carol Rosenberg um, on, I guess it was, what, Wednesday of now last week, two days ago when we're recording this, um, reported that the government in the Court of Military Commission review in its response to a filing by Nashiri's one remaining lawyer to dismiss the appeal for lack of jurisdiction. The appeal of the abatement determination. The appeal of the abatement determination, thank you, um, has provided an eight-paragraph summary of the underlying uh, dispute okay. that, that, to which we were not previously privy. Is it, I'm curious procedurally: is it is it a declaration or an affidavit, or is it just in the brief? Sort of I think it's just in a it's just part of a 15-page filing okay. that the government made in the CMCR. All right. So what do we learn? There was a microphone. Um, okay. So that that's interesting. They they concede the existence of a microphone there. Uh, right. So the the da, 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 the this I'm just reading from Carol Rosenberg's story here. The narrative contained in a 15-page prosecution filing is the first authoritative description of the episode. Um, the prosecution says the listening device that lawyers discovered in an early August inspection of their special meeting room was a legacy of past interrogations. So they don't deny that, in fact, a listening device was discovered, right? They don't deny that it was discovered by the lawyers, but they say to, they, they, they deny that it was on. Right. Okay, so there's, there's a couple of versions that could be completely consistent with that account. One is that um, whether it was on at that moment or not, that actually there was a, we should use the word hidden microphone, yes. that could well have been used, maybe was used to... Uh, inappropriately monitor attorney-client communications. However, this statement of facts is also completely consistent with the possibility that there's this room that once was used <coughs> for a different purpose, and when it was used for that prior purpose, there was, for a very good reason, you know, there's a microphone here, there's a microphone there, not all of them visible, yeah. and that one of them just got left. Never got left. Yeah, and, no, it no. Does, and it doesn't signify a damn thing. So, so here's the problem. On a clean slate, I would agree with you completely that the existence of a microphone of itself proves nothing. Here's the problem. The problem is, is that once the lawyers discovered this microphone, the prosecution and the court, right, barred them from investigating further, barred them from telling their client that they had discovered a microphone on or off, right, in the right. meeting room, barred them from telling anyone of what they had discovered, right, and left them in this impossible position where they didn't know which of those two scenarios was the correct one and had no way of finding out or of properly advising their client of the concern. I think this is a really important distinction, and it, and it draws out a nuance to the, the, the core issue, as we keep emphasizing, is there's this claim by the defense team that's unethical to proceed. Um, and I think early on, at least, it seemed like the, the heart of that argument must be that it's unethical to proceed because they're being monitored. And then you have a food fight about whether that belief's true. I think what you just described highlights that it's, it's more nuanced than that. They may or may not have been monitored, but they've been barred from communicating with their clients about what is going on in a situation where there's at least a big red flag. And that, to me, is a more sympathetic account. Insofar as the first account, it seemed like if it were true they were being monitored, of course that's an issue, but we need to litigate this to find out if that's real. We need to investigate and litigate to find out if it's going on. But you're clarifying, and Carol's uh, reporting is clarifying, that it's more like there's this procedural layer where the lawyers were put in a position where 
they couldn't interact with their clients about what the next steps ought to be. And that, that I think, actually does present a sharper and clearer ethical issue, even if we haven't yet figured out whether there really was any monitoring. In fact, you could stipulate there was no monitoring, but barring the attorneys from talking to their client about the red flags and the situation and whether and how to proceed to dig into it, I actually do think that is a problem. And, and now I think we start to see why the lawyers might have thought their only possible remedy at that point was to resign, right? If they were legally stopped from investigating the microphone, from publicizing the microphone, or from getting their client, right, on board with them to, to just to tell them what was going on, and perhaps even to obtain informed consent, right? Ask Nashiri if, you know, he'd be willing to, you know, I don't know, waive whatever objection well, so you might he, have. Here's my problem with it, though. Why isn't the proper remedy not withdraw, but appeal? So Spath says, you, here's your order. This is all sealed. You can't talk about it. Right. Don't talk to your client. You're gagged. So appeal it. So there's no mechanism, right, for a direct appeal of that kind of order in the military commissions. I mean, they could theoretically have sought a writ of mandamus from so CMCR. Is, is this the same interlock narrow narrow pathways to interlocutory appeal as we talked about before? Yeah, and indeed, I mean, as we talked about, the standard for getting a writ of mandamus in those circumstances is quite, quite high under the D.C. Yeah. circuits and onerous. So, you know, I think it's quite possible that they may have thought, um, but also— I they, think they should have yeah. tried. Yeah, I mean, so it's also possible that they might have construed Spath's order as barring them from appealing, which, of course, yeah. would be problematic. In now, its that, own. I think, could be appealed. Well, <laughs> that, that's a meta issue. But absolutely, right. you know, in order, a district judge's order to bar you from appealing, no, of course. I think that you can definitely appeal that. Yes, but I think if you're worried about being thrown in jail, which given that Spath had already had, given that Spath indeed shortly would hold the chief defense counsel in contempt and confine him to his quarters. Hey, that just shows you that you're going to jail either way. <laughs> so you might as well, you know, follow all, the uh, all route. Is, listen, I think, I think you, you, you hit the nail on the head. Wholly apart now from whether there was, in fact, intrusion there is this specter of interference um, that is really a problem yeah. from the government's perspective. And frankly, that I don't understand, right? That is to I say- I, I agree. Like, if it was in a- if, So let's assume the yeah, best innocuous. possible facts. Innocuous. Um, they, they got 26 of the 27 mics when they were sweeping the room. Yeah. They left this one. This looks bad, but it's innocent. Why isn't the right thing to do for Mark Martins himself to come out and say, you know, full disclosure- Right, we accidentally left a mic in the room. Here's how you know we will we will allow both the defense, a properly cleared defense lawyer, and the judge to come and inspect the room. I know we will show them how the mic didn't record anything. Right, like I mean, it does seem to me, like you say, that this feels like just something that hasn't been managed well. That's made a mountain out of a molehill. Like this should have been. In, in, unless, of course, there was real monitoring. Well, but that's the thing. So it's either a mountain out of a molehill or it's or, a mountain to hide a mountain. Right. I mean, that's like, <laughs> right. I mean, this is so. But but either way. Right. I think that the yeah. sort of the, the the sense in some quarters that this was just, you know. But to silence it isn't the right pathway. Right. And yeah. so the, and so the, the sense that this is just defense lawyers, you know, grasping at straws, I think, is now belied by this disclosure. I, I think it could be a little bit. You know, it, it could be all these things at once, right? There, there's poor management. There's, there's, the the prosecution team is not entirely in charge of all this stuff, and right? So there's that. Um, but whatever's going on, it's a good sign, perhaps, that even though procedurally it's not obvious, it, at least I certainly didn't think that this seventh layer with the <laughs> appeal of the 
whether the, order. The, the litigation over whether you can have an interlocutory appeal of an abatement order, I thought was just further pushing us away from the merits. But lo and behold, maybe a little merits will creep in there. And our friends on the CMCR, by <laughs> all means, grasp the nettle. Just try to grab as much of this issue. Eat the whole seven-layer dip and resolve the damn things. So well, because we I, mean, I, mean, I mean, so here's here's how I think you could do it, right? I mean, so. If you believe that the abatement is dependent upon the propriety of the learned counsel resigning, then it's right? all there. Then it's all there. And then you say, well, the question of whether Judge Faith properly abated the proceeding turns on whether the defense lawyers properly resigned. Right. And that turns the, on right. this, and that turns on that. And yeah. then you get to everything. All right. So put that dip on the table, chomp down. It's time. I mean, so two, uh, if I commit to just two last quick points. Yeah. So one, this also helps to explain why, as we've been discussing, this doesn't infect the other proceedings because this interview room is apparently not used by the other defendants with their uh-huh. lawyers. Uh-huh. So, and so, so, so as we, I think, suspected in an earlier episode, um, it is the physical infrastructure piece of this that is what has made this Nashiri specific. Which adds, how, you know, that just adds to the stupidity of, of it all. It like, let's, let's burn that room to the ground and well, just go so that's, somewhere so else. So that's my second point. Um, <laughs> I, I seem to recall a certain official formerly in the military commissions who suggested that exact result <laughs> um, and who proposed constructing a new facility that would be clean of these concerns. Um, Bobby, he got fired. Yeah, yeah. So I, I so so That's even a, though you know, I, I keep going back and forth about why I think Harvey Rishikoff got fired. Like one week I think it's because of, you know, the attempt to negotiate plea agreements with the nine eleven defendants. And now I'm wondering if maybe part of this was also part of the story. Um, we will find out, I suppose, at some point soon, because don't well, we have Mattis a... Is, uh, right. Mattis is supposed to file this explanation of why he fired Rishikoff with Judge Pohl in the 9-11 case, I think, um, the week after, when you're listening, a week from now, and basically 10 days from as we're recording this. Yeah, so I I will be really surprised if his filing says much beyond generalities about right. the importance, you know, everyone's... Chain of command... Mind. Well, yeah, I mean, and, yeah. and you know, I'm, I'm the Secretary of Defense. Right. Everybody here is working my pleasure. Buck stops and, here. And, you know, I, if I didn't want to work with this guy, I didn't have to. And then the question is well, whether Poe will find that satisfactory to adjudicate the motion for, you know, I know. Well, this, for sanctions. So when I when I think I first saw this on Twitter, I, I couldn't resist uh, retweeting or passing it along, along with an image, a little a gif of uh, – um, what's his face in a few good men? Uh, oh, <laughs> you know? Jack Nicholson. Yeah, because I'm kind of picturing like. <laughs> so, are we going to get to the point where somebody's like dragging you Mattis know, onto Jim the Mattis stand. down there? And you know, obviously that's not going to happen. But the, the image, General Mattis, did you order the code red? Damn right, I did. <laughs> no, I, I think uh, I think he uh, is unlikely to be cross-examined over this. Oh yeah, I think that's right. All right, um, so that's 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 all we have in, in microphone gate. Um, we'll see where that goes. Obviously, I think now the ball is in the CMCR's court. I'll just say, as, as listeners likely know, I am not the largest, biggest fan in the world of the CMCR. Um, I, I hope they surprise me on this one. Not necessarily in, in what they say on the merits, but in sort of finding a way to get to the merits and moving the ball ahead. Definitely possible. Go for it. All right. Uh, Doe versus Mattis. Uh, we actually have gone like a week and a half without talking about it. So, hey, what the hey? It's back. So, uh, two, th- two quick notes. The first is that we have learned the identity of the D.C. Circuit panel that will hear the government's appeal on the transfer issue. So, just really quick reminder, um, right, John Doe, U.S. citizen, been held in military custody as an enemy combatant in Iraq since September. Uh, Judge Chutkin, in the course of adjudicating his habeas petition, entered an order uh, requiring the government to provide, I think it was 72 hours notice 
um, to Doe before he's transferred to a foreign country, in theory, so that Doe could then seek some kind of emergency relief from such a transfer. Right. He could either argue fear of torture, uh, which there are issues about whether he'd be able to, but he could he would have a fact pattern, perhaps. Uh, or he could argue what we call the Valentine right. issue. Lack of affirmative authority to transfer. Right. Um, so the government took an appeal from that part of the decision, even as the merits of Doe are, are moving along. The appeal is scheduled to be heard on April 5th. And Bobby, the three-judge panel is Karen Henderson, Sri Srinivasan, and Roger Wilkins. Okay, for the listeners out there who aren't a D.C. Circuit aficionados, <laughs> give us sort of the uh, the the political science you know perspective, the, the attitudinal model perspective on these. So let me just say, I mean, Judge Henderson is a firm supporter of the administration, especially in Guant- uh, the government. I shouldn't say the administration in Guantanamo yeah. cases, <laughs> especially. Um, she was on the D.C. Circuit back in 2009, 2010, when this issue arose in the context of the Guantanamo detainees. Um, she was not one of the judges calling for rehearing on Bonk of Kiemba oh, too. Okay. Right. So I think it's quite likely. Yeah that she will be a sympathetic vote for the government in this case. Okay, leaning government, there's one. Leaning government. Um, You know, Shri and Judge Wilkins are much harder. Um, These are both Obama appointees, but Mm -hmm. they are actually, I mean, Shri especially, you know, no one's definition of like a, a, a sort of, bleeding heart human rights lawyer, right? I okay. mean, he was deputy solicitor general um, okay. in the Obama administration. Would, so, you, would you describe Shri as kind of a Kagan-esque? Sort yes, of very much so. I, I quite, I, indeed. Um, Kagan-esque, I like that. Kagan-esque. And, and so, I, you know, I think Shri's very smart. Like, I think he's not, you know, no, he's not going to, he doesn't tolerate fools. Right, no, so he'll be looking into the, the nuances Very of this, sharply. Right? Okay. Um, you know, Judge Wilkins, too. I mean, I think Shri and Judge Wilkins will probably be a little more sympathetic to Doe. Neither of them were, you know, they're both Obama appointees. Neither were on the D.C. Circuit during the, yeah. the relevant en banc litigation in over the Guantanamo cases. So I guess what my, my sort of quick and dirty bottom line is it is a g- pretty good panel for Doe. But not, you know, but it's not it's not clear yeah. going in which way it's going to go. I was go. kind of thinking it was a pretty good panel for the government, really. I mean, the, the truth is, like, this is an uphill battle for Doe. Yeah. Um, and so this is not a bad panel for the government. No, I, th- I mean, listen, it's, I, I, don't, I, don't think, I don't think this panel is conclusive, right? Like, right. like there are— It's going to get a fair hearing. There are co- exactly right. Yeah. There, are exa- there are combinations of D.C. Circuit judges where I would say, you know, start writing the en banc papers now. Right, right. This, this is not one of them. This, so this will be good. And for our purposes, it's the best possible Indeed. outcome. It's it sounds interesting. like there will be a real kind of, you know, nuanced engagement with well, the and issues. Well, and listen, and frankly, I mean, I think as, you know, we'll talk about this as we get closer. I really think this whole issue comes down— to whether, especially because this is a three-judge panel, which is bound by prior precedent from the D.C. Circuit. So the whole thing comes down to whether this panel believes that the three-judge panel decision in Kiemba 2 with regard to the Uyghurs um, has equal force in the context of uh, of U.S. citizens. I just I just can't believe that it, it could carry over that easily, and they're going to have to make their own determination well, see, about whether the same rules should apply for a citizen. I mean, that's the question. I, I agree with you, but I think that's going to be the dominant yeah, issue sure. before the before the panel. We'll, we'll, do, we'll I have think, fun with that one. We'll do a fuller preview, I think, yeah. as we get closer to, to that. All right. Okay, um, so that's one part of Doe. But meanwhile, the, 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 the merits of the habeas litigation are proceeding apace. Yeah. It's kind of funny from a procedural posture, like how, how – the briefing just kind of goes on and on <laughs> just because you have the instead of a you know the complaint and the answer you've got the petition then you've got the return and then you know both of those elements have a they have a sort of a 
an element of legal memoranda in them that you don't associate with an answer or a complaint. So you feel like you've already had some briefing, but then comes the briefing. So we're now uh, four documents total in. And from the beginning, we've been seeing the legal you know, theories of Doe, and we've been seeing the government's legal theories well, of Well, we had predicted them. Right. And, and now there's actually, there's still one more to go, Steve, not until... Wednesday of next week, Wednesday the uh, 14th. So two days from now as you're listening. As you're listening, exactly. Um, the government's, no, Doe's last document will be filed. <laughs> the sir, sir reply? Exactly. And, and so I've been, I've been trying to you know, profile the case as it goes for, for lawfare and uh, finally just got kind of tired of waiting and decided that it was, A, pretty clear what the legal disputes are at this point. Uh, B, um, the ACLU and the government are to a substantial extent kind of sp- arguing past one another, each, you know, sticking with their preferred framing of how, to, how the case ought to be thought about. And, and of course, my own view is, is a little bit of a, of a blend of the two. And so I went ahead and summed up uh, as a primer on lawfare, you know, the issues that I think the judge actually has to, has to engage in. And of course, this may not be what the judge chooses to engage in, but here's sort of the sequence that's based on what the parties have been arguing, but it's not really tracking how either one of them is trying to frame it. So, so here goes. And you can tell me, I'll offer some opinions as I go. And you can see what we're on the same page about. And I don't think we should try to get into the weeds too much. Yeah. Just sort of see, like, where do we think the action is? Where yeah. does the friction point occur? Sure. So the, interestingly and amazing to me, the government actually opens and tries to maintain the same damn threshold argument about how, uh, yeah, sure, a citizen does get habeas review when held in military detention, even overseas perhaps, but it's too soon. Yeah, good wait. luck with that. we got to wait. So there's this ripeness claim. There's just no way. I mean, come on. I actually think it's a really bad tactical move because it expends some credibility right out of the gates. Right. If, if it was a student I was working with on their on their mock argument, I'd say, listen, that if this was the first few weeks, first even first couple of months, as our own prior discussions highlighted, there's there's a fuzzy line because it's clear that uh, the court doesn't should not engage immediately. But it's half a year and counting later. And so I think we're well past the point where there's reasonable room for disagreement here. They should have just skipped this argument. I agree. Or at least just confined it to a footnote. Footnote, right. Yeah. All right. So on to the merits. Um, the the essence of Doe's uh, legal objection is that uh, as a citizen, there's got to be clear statutory authority to detain him. And the existing potentially relevant authorities aren't clear enough. That's basically what he's arguing. So the first question then becomes, well, is that right that there's some rule from either the Constitution or a statute that does create something along the lines of a clear statutory delegation of authority to detain rule specific to citizens? Doe says you can get it from two places. He says you can get it from the Fifth Amendment. He says you can get it anyways by Congress uh, from the Non-Detention Act. Now, obviously, the Non-Detention Act does say something very close to this, so <coughs> that that part is, is pretty strong. We'll talk about exactly what it means. I'm curious, though, because obviously you're, you're much better off if it actually is a rule that's in any event compelled by the Due Process Clause. Um, I think, for my part, that the Due Process Clause can certainly be fairly said you know, to require relative clarity, relative to what would be true for a Mm non-citizen, at least. Um, I don't think you can derive, in fact, I'm pretty sure you can't derive an actual kind of bright line, you must use the magic words, citizens can be detained in the following way type of rule. And I I think that in part because Endo, which is, you know, one of the key cases that that Doe's relying upon, 
itself didn't actually require it, it. It talked about how it creates a rule of construction, this sort of principle, and that if you don't have a clear statement, then whatever the asserted authority is has to be construed very narrowly. So I think it's more of a rule of construction rather than a bright line rule. Uh, do you think Do you think the Fifth Amendment's stronger than that? No, no, I don't. Um, but but the rule, and then the question is just how how specific a rule of construction is it? Right, and and then you get into sort of murkiness where it's hard to. Well, listen, I mean, I, I mean, I think, I mean, so so you know, if, if I think the whole, the action is going to be on exactly that question, right? Because I think that 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 the whole key here is whether Judge Chutkin believes that the AUMF especially as construed by the plurality in Hamdi, is sufficiently specific with regard to detention, um, even for someone who's not a member of al-Qaeda or the Taliban, but rather of a group that, whatever it's covered under the AUMF, is not as directly at the core of the statute. Right. That, that's, so that's where this all goes to. Yep. So if we say, all right, so the due process clause probably not doing any special work here. Yeah. Whatever rule it's creating is also clearly the rule of the Non-Detention Act. Right. I mean, I think, I think, that, I think, that there's, I think it's quite clear that a statute that satisfies the Non-Detention Act for purposes of military detention there you go. Will, will at least satisfy the substantive component of the due process clause. Now, if we run it backwards, it gets interesting. What if you have a statute that, what if you have a statutory source for detention yeah. that's that's not good enough for the Non-Detention Act, but is not a problem under the Due Process Clause, hypothetically. This, of course, the only way that you well, that's the, only, how, the that's, only way you can move forward is if there's a Commander in Chief override argument. Right. I mean, like that, I mean, that's to, to sort of change facts for a second. That's Howe versus Smith. That's the 1981 Supreme Court case about the Non-Detention Act, where you didn't have this grand, uh, right, where you didn't have this grand constitutional question. So it was just about whether a state prisoner could be held in a federal prison. Yeah. Um, but where the fact that the statute didn't author, you know, the fa- where the whole question was, to, had Congress authorized such detention apart and separate from the constitutional considerations? Right. Now, in that case, as the government was quick to point out, you weren't dealing with wartime authority uh, claims. So, yeah. so it's not dispositive, but it looms large. Well, that's sort of the tail end of yep. the argument. And I kind of suspect we're never going to get to this commander in chief override type argument, but we'll see. The real action is primarily going to be and should be about whether or not the AUMFs, the 2001 <laughs> or 2002 AUMFs, encompass the Islamic State with sufficient clarity so as to satisfy the Non-Detention Act. And it boils down to, is this case enough like Hamdi or not? Um, And we could probably go round and round about that. We'll we'll do that in more detail once the oral argument gets closer. But I think you and I agree, that is the ballgame. It's most of the ballgame. But did you notice in the briefing, um, the government says very little about the Non-Detention Act. They really keep kind of steering away from it. I think that's a, do you think that's a tactical choice to try to, through, almost like a, a rhetorical move to make it seem less central by just refusing to engage it all that much. Yeah, and if you go back and look at their briefs in, at there, at the government's briefs in Hamdi and Padilla back in 2004, it was a similar attack, right? That like, oh, and of course, therefore, the Non-Detention Act is yeah, not a problem. there's this like weird statute. But, it's no, you know, it's, it's no problem. It just seems to me that it's the central thing. I've always thought that was, I, I thought at the time Hamdi and Padilla were litigated that the government was downplaying the importance of the Non-Detention Act, and right. I think they're doing it again today. Yeah. Well, it maybe doesn't matter that much, because at the end of the day, what it's going to become is a question about whether and to what extent the court is going to question the executive branch determination, which is not not originally a Trump determination, it's an right. Obama determination, that the Islamic State remains within the scope of the AMFs. Um, we don't need to rehearse it all here, but no. I think we should use this to pivot over to the next topic, political question and uh-huh. reference, because especially in the final government filing, which, as we mentioned, has, is now in the books in Dovey Mattis, there's a long section, maybe 10 pages, um, about political question doctrine arguments and deference arguments that suggests that 
A, factually, the Islamic State is within the AMF, yes, but never mind that. Legally, the judge needs to give binding deference, in effect, to the executive branch's determination on this question. Um, so I wanted to offer just a kind of a quick comment about the way in which that argument was presented, because I, I found it fascinating. And, and as you and I both share an interest in this topic, it's one Indeed. of the few areas of sort of the Fed courtsy stuff that I've actually been interested in over Woo! time, uh, where I can intersect with you to some extent. And one of the things that's really important to bear in mind when talking about deference in the national security setting is deference is a spectrum. Mm -hmm. There's everything from you're, you're just being polite and paying <laughs> lip service up to a thumb on the scale that's marginal to a thumb on the scale that's heavy to binding deference, which <laughs> manifests in lots of different forms, including the political question doctrine, where the way that you're giving binding deference is you're refusing to, to adjudicate at all. Um, the entire section in the government's brief, it's all framed as political question, maximal deference. And I, I don't know if it's purposeful or not, but they did skip the framing in which you say, first, we think it's all a political question and the court should just, you know, has to accept the government's determination, full stop. Right. Why not make the alternative argument, the fallback argument that in any event, at a minimum, the government is d entitled by virtue of comparative institutional competence, comparative institutional legitimacy. It's entitled to a thumb on the scale on this very fuzzy mixed question of factual and policy judgment that is underneath the legal interpretation of the AMFs regarding what is the Islamic State in its relation to Al-Qaeda and the overarching uh, purpose of the AUMF. Uh, I'm really surprised they don't at least say, look, in insofar as this is a close call, the fact that the government deserves some degree of deference, even if it's not a political question, that should dispose of this anyways. They pointedly don't do it. And I think it's that same sort of uh, civil litigation mentality where you just, I don't want to show any weakness. Why, why offer the middle ground position? Right, lest why, somebody... why, why, show your, why show your chin? Yeah, yeah exactly. And it's kind of the, to me, it's there, there's these two sort of sh styles people bring to bear to negotiation yeah. and to litigation. One is the stake out the maximum position. Right. Opposition and, programs. Exactly. And then hope you end up at a middle position you can live with. And then there's another approach that in some contexts I think just has so much more credibility where you're just really clear about where the lines are and what and it's the positions Because you and I as academics, I think, are always inclined toward the latter, that you actually yeah. – develop credibility and you bolster your argument and you actually potentially attract folks to your position who might not otherwise have been attracted right. if you could if you show that you understand exactly where the weak points are and if you anticipate and respond to counter arguments. And you provide and you provide a, a lesser alternative. So well, the, but yeah. so so the reason why I mean I, I agree with all of that. I, I actually think there's a, a deeper point to make about Doe versus Madison the political question doctrine, separate from the government's litigation strategy and tactics, which is you know, contrast all of the briefing that you've summarized um, and what Judge Chutkin is ultimately going to decide in Doe versus Mattis with the substantive claim being offered by Captain Nathan Smith, right, in the Smith versus Trump case that the D.C. Circuit could decide any day where you have an American service member who was complaining that it was unlawful for him to be deployed to Syria, um, right, because the Congress hadn't authorized the use of military force against ISIS. Now, we've talked before about the district court's decision in that case, which relied alternatively on Smith not having standing and on the political question doctrine. You and I are both of the view that it is both correct and the better way for the DC Circuit just to affirm on standing. Yes. But I do think, but the government, of course, has argued full throttle. Oh, yeah. Right? No, I don't blame them for doing it. Like, well, but what here, a great precedent for them that would be. But here's the question, right? The actual merits question in both cases, is just about the same. There's one little tweak thanks to the Non-Detention Act, right? Right. But the basic question is, you know, 
does the AUMF or do the AUMFs plural cover ISIS? Right. Right. Um, that question is: if you clear away the procedural baggage, if you assume that Nathan Smith had standing, that right, if it was a right, 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 that question is not presented in any materially different form in the two cases. No, that's right. They both they both at least at some point require consideration of that argument by judges. Right. right? The, both cases ask a federal judge to decide based on a mix of public and classified facts and legal arguments. What is whether these two statutes authorizes military force against ISIS? I just don't see the argument that one of those cases can be a political question when the other one isn't. Like, if the it's not there, there's a good line. I think it's Lou Hankin, right? Um, there's no such thing as political cases doctrine. It's the political question doctrine, and the question in both of those right. cases is a legal question that the courts can, should, and will answer. So let's break it down a bit, because I think part of what causes confusion here is that the tendency to it, at one level, yes, there's a single question, is the Islamic State within the scope? But there are subparts to that question that inform the answer. There are questions of fact, yeah. there are questions of policy, yeah. and there are questions of, of law, right? So, of course. What, and so just to tease that out a bit, just sort of off the cuff, um, the legal questions have to do with the proper interpretation of the terms actually used in both the 2001 and the 2002 AUMFs. And of course, the the uh, the political question aspect is always going to be weakest insofar as you're talking about whether a judge is entitled to try to construe the terms of a, of a statute or the Constitution, et cetera. That's, you know, in, interpreting, saying what the law is, that's kind of core function. This, this is what we do, says Chief Justice Robertson Zivotofsky. This is what we do. Um, but and, see Ben Ali Chabra. And then conversely, the, the claims get strongest insofar as the question in route to doing that at some point, if you have to cross a bridge that is a policy judgment or an interpretation of historical fact or or potential future factual developments, then it starts getting murky. Um, in this case, I'm curious what you think. What is it really that this turns on, right? Because is there a factual dispute? I mean, it seems actually there's some degree of general consensus about ISIS was AQI, AQI was Zarqawi's group. It's had different names over time. The most recent government brief points out it's had like 32 different names. Uh, it's had varying degrees of affiliation. I think there are, at different points in time on the chronology, real factual issues about to what extent was what was the exact practical nature yeah, yeah. of the tie to Al-Qaeda. But I think the ones that really matter, all the weight has to do with two particular factual questions. When did the United States effectively disengage from what had been the war in Iraq? Right. When we withdrew, was it right then? Was it a month later? Right. Um, there are some interesting factual questions there. And then there are just legal interpretations of the significance of that Correct. withdrawal. And then the thing everyone focuses on, what exactly was the nature of the breakup between the Islamic State and Al-Qaeda? It, it doesn't appear that actually is that disputed either. The question is, what's the legal significance of that? And that to me, so 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 I just, I mean, there, I just, I think there are two different things to say there, right? First, that strikes, I think, both of us as an eminently justiciable question, right? That that is the kind of thing courts can do, and indeed have done. I mean, look at the Guantanamo habeas cases, right? The the le mixed factual legal significance of particular things that happen on the ground. So I'm I'm torn on that one because. At one level, and I had just been advancing this argument yeah. about if you tease out the factual yeah. and policy judgments from the legal judgments, the legal stuff is pretty clearly within the court's ombud. Um, characterizing the significance under the AUMF of the breakup yeah. between uh, al-Baghdadi and al-Qaeda senior leadership, I'm, 
on one hand, I see the argument for saying like, look, that's just trying to decide the meaning of the implied term associated force or the implied idea of a successor uh, idea. And then that sounds legal, sounds justiciable. Or is it actually a really fuzzy question of policy judgment about what it means from a U.S. national security perspective and strategic threat perspective for a splinter cell effectively to form? But and that sounds to me like something that requires deference. But, but so, so here's – this is exactly why I think this is such a useful illustration of the broader debate of the political question doctrine. Um, you characterize the political question doctrine as a deference doctrine, right? Right. Um, that is not the only way it is characterized, True. right? I, I share your – view, um, which I think is best encapsulated in Justice White's concurring opinion in the Walter Nixon case, that the political question doctrine is really not about the courts taking their hands off and saying, no matter what, we won't decide this case. That rather the political question doctrine is about recognizing a range of conduct, right, bounds of executive branch action or, you know, congressional action, inside of which the courts won't second guess what's going on, right? And so... That, that it's deference, not abdication. Um, and on that read, right, there are a lot of problems, not with the Supreme Court's political question jurisprudence, it's actually pretty consistent on this front, but with circuit-level political question cases like Bin Ali Jabber, the drone strike case we've talked about before, where the courts are not approaching these as deference cases, where the claim is, listen, you just haven't shown us that the government abused the discretion that they're committed, that's been committed to them by law, where the courts are saying, we can't even look because yeah, this is just beyond our ken. Well, can, does it have to be one or the other? I mean, can there can there basically be? Are there two political question doctrines? Yes, I teach. Yeah. I this I that's how I teach it in Fed court. So I teach that there are two. One about those cases that have been textually committed for resolution to some other branch, right? Which I right. think have the strongest claim to categorical. Right. So uh, the House is the judge of the the qualifications of its own members. Yep. And and the Senate has the sole power to tr- to, to 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 try cases of impeachment. Right. Um, I actually disagree that that's what that means. But that's what the Supreme Court has held, <laughs> but, but, yeah, right? right. Um, so that's the sort of the textually demonstrable commitment strand. The other strand is cases that present quote a lack of judicially manageable standards, right? Which I think is most familiar to us these days is like partisan gerrymandering. Um, at least for now. At least for mm. now, we'll see. Right. Um, uh, I, I feel good that that won't change by Monday because the Supreme Court's not issuing more decisions until March nineteenth. <laughs> so I, I say all this just to say that in this context, right, the fact that we are sort of this deep into the briefing in the habeas case underscores to me why in Smith versus Obama, the problem is just not the political question doctrine, right? The problem is um, much more about the, I mean, in his case, standing, right? right. And, that, and that we ought to sort of keep in mind how much work courts are doing in habeas cases, how much the FISA court, I mean, how much of this stuff actually is happening right. on a regular basis in courts. Well, and, and to, to use that to tie it in back, to tie Please. it back into yeah. Dovey Madison that ended, um, <laughs> there's, there's been ton, one of the, one of the arguments that's central in the government's opposition under the political question heading is that the court shouldn't second guess this determination that the Islamic states within the scope, they, the court just has to accept the executive's determination. Yep. But in the Gitmo habeas litigation, there was, there's, been tons of stuff about whether uh, Gulbuddin Hekmatyar's group counted as a Taliban-associated force, whether the Islamic movement of Uzbekistan counted. Um, there hasn't been a huge amount of it because most of the Gitmo detainees are alleged to be kind of core Afghan yeah, yeah. Taliban or Al-Qaeda. But there's been plenty of that, and no one no one really like lost their minds trying to figure out which groups were in, which ones were out. That said, my, my own bottom line is the government, at a minimum, is entitled to a, a thumb on the scale uh-huh. Uh, and, and certainly, if it's a close call, the, the courts don't need to 
to be second-guessing the executive branch's determination that in the ever-shifting kaleidoscope of, of jihadi network reassortments um, that for the, for the relevant time this particular group is in. So long as you agree that Congress meant to delegate that determination to the executive branch in the first place, right? Absolutely, and I think the AMF provides some no, no, I, text listen, to support I, I agree that. with that. My point is just that the, the deference in, in this case, and I think you and I might differ on this, right? The deference in this case, I think you would argue, stems at least in some part from the president's inherent constitutional role, whereas to me the deference stems entirely from the fact that Congress, when it authorized the president to use this military force, um, delegated to him, literally, the power to determine those groups that were covered by the AUMF. I think, uh, happily for the executive branch, they get both. Well, in this case. <laughs> um, all right. So I'll just say that, like, I mean, I think this is why, I mean, I think Doe versus Mattis is interesting in, like, 36 different directions, right? Yep. And it's not just the facts. It's not just the merits. It's not just because the ISIS question is kind of one of the more important counterterrorism law questions in the U.S. law today. It's because it just helps to sort of... S- centralize, right, and, and sharpen our focus on so many different pieces of the puzzle about, like, the role of the courts in national security litigation. Can I throw out one more? Please. Uh, so another major strand in the government's briefing is yeah. the ratification argument. Yep. So it's interesting. We're familiar with the ratification argument in the general setting of, like, let's say it's, you know, Kosovo. And the right, Air and so War. Congress is funding. And you kind of have this war. Differently, it either works or de- like. Uh, let me back up. Yeah. There are some people who reject the idea that ratification can occur through funding, especially because the war- WPR tries to say it doesn't right. count. Now, whether that counts, whether of course, whether Congress gets meta. to whether I, I think it's a critical meta. The idea that Congress gets to decide that this doesn't count, no, I think, is a, a bootstrapping. Yeah. Um, but so some people say, like, I don't want to hear about ratification through spending. Okay, fine. But if you're open to it, as some people are, then there's an interesting question about whether does it work any different? A, when you're talking about a, sort of a, this additional gloss on an existing AMF, right. I'm not sure that should matter. What about non-detention act? If if what you're actually interested in is uh, a clear statement rule under the or something on the spectrum of clarity at right. least, then does all, ratification that, actually maybe work well enough for the general separate separation of powers issues, yet not well enough for the non-detention. So not only act. not only do I think the answer to that is yes, but I think the ratification argument runs into a roadblock when it comes to the non-detention act in the form of the Feinstein amendment to the FY 2012 NDAA. Right. So so the ratification argument is that Congress has repeatedly, you know, had opportunities to not fund, yeah. right, and has funded. Yeah. And they're clearly super fine with fighting the Islamic State. Correct. No, there's just no question that the intent of Congress reflected in appropriations laws yeah. over and over again. They want us fighting the Islamic Correct. State. Correct. Um, the only evidence we have of Congress's specific intent when it comes to covering citizens under any more capacious definition of associated forces, under anything beyond what the plain text of the 2001 AUMF authorizes, is actually a reservation of authority, right? In the fiscal year 2012 National Defense Authorization Act, the Feinstein Amendment says nothing we're saying in the statute alters the status quo, right, of detention of citizens or other LPRs, right? Um, And I think that actually cuts against the ratification argument here because it suggests Congress did not view 
and indeed expressly provided that subsequent developments were not meant to have an effect on the original statute. So I certainly agree that clearly the whole point of the Feinstein Amendment was to preclude any kind of reliance arguments based on the NDAA, and that cast a shadow over any arguments about citizen-specific ratification through funding. I think even without Feinstein, though, you couldn't really point to these broad right. war funding measures. As specifically discussing citizens. Yeah, because no, you know, citizens just didn't loom large in it. Of course. But what I do think, though, that both the NDAA and the funding mechanisms make uh, make really hard to contest is the idea that there are associated forces and the Islamic State is, at least from the, within the view of Congress, fairly within the scope. I think the harder, the actual, the better counterargument is to say, okay, but wait, but then why do we keep having these bills to pass a new AMF to name the Islamic State? And of course, as you and I have both sort of lived through those bills, <laughs> um, that, that does muddy it, yes, but not much because it, the proponents of the bills themselves and the White House in both administrations are, are consistently and rather frustratingly saying, yeah, yeah, this is just kind of a belt and suspenders thing. Right. We don't need it. We and just in want, fact, we don't. We don't, yeah, we're not sure we need it. We don't need it, in fact, but it'd be nice to have as a, as a political statement. And that makes it impossible to cite those legislative efforts or harder right. to cite them as evidence that the funding wasn't really meant to justify things. But, well, and so what's interesting is, right, I mean, so, so the, the political question event I was part of on Wednesday was about the Taiwan treaty termination case, Goldwater versus oh, Carter. And, and one of the things that really sort of screwed up Goldwater versus Carter is even though you had, you had 25 members of Congress suing the president for unilaterally withdrawing from the Taiwan Defense Treaty, but one of the things that really got in their way was Congress hadn't really done anything as Congress, specifically to try to disavow yeah. um, President Carter's action, right? And I guess the question is, is that a necessary predicate, right, to resolving these disputes? It's certainly not in the detention context because the predicate there is you've got someone in custody, right? Right. The question is, at that, if that's true, right, if, in the, if the mere fact that someone's in custody gives a federal court the power to decide who's right about the war powers question, why is that question less within the power of the courts to decide in a non-detention case where the plaintiff otherwise has standing, where the dispute is ripe? Right. Well, the, the problem is the standing, right? The, can, the limited no, no, congressional but this is standing, my point. Yeah. My point is that I think we confuse, right, what are, to me, appropriate limits on standing. Right. This goes right? back to your Smith point. Correct. Um, um, anyway. Know, well, and it, and it highlights something I've always thought is fun. I know both of us teach in our classes that – in order to get the courts to engage on these types of national security concerns, it always, for 200-something years, has been the case. What you have to have is somebody or something, the custody over which is in contention, yes. and you can't avoid adjudicating it because there's a there's a ship, and it's in the Admiralty <laughs> Court, and you got to figure out who owns it. Or oh, there's yeah. a person, and they're in custody, and they have habeas access. And when you don't have things, when you just have drone strikes right. or lethal force, hard to litigate. Then you don't get litigation. But my and my point is just that 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 I, I accept that completely as a descriptive premise. Yeah, and I, I know think you don't analytically. Like no, I think analytically it doesn't hold up to scrutiny because right. I don't know why the fact that someone's in custody changes the competence of the court. Right. If the two justifications for political questions are textual commitment of decision making authority yeah. to somebody else or lack of judicially manageable standards, neither of those turn on, you know, habeas, uh, on the, the literal definition of habeas corpus, on the fact that you have a body in custody. And, th and this is exactly why I think that the deference understanding yep. is so much more useful. It's, it of really course. should be about where, it, where, if at all, the thumb goes on the scale on very specific questions. I, can, I couldn't agree with that more. All right. All right. I think we've done our duty so here. So it would be, it's actually, it's too bad. This would be a good place to segue to a discussion of the, of the now introduced Yemen resolution. But I think to give that its due diligence, we ought to we ought to wait for 
for more time for our next episode. Or, or, or for a slightest whiff of a, a snowball's chance in hell that that goes anywhere. Yeah, that's never stopped us before. That's true. Uh, we, the, the, the likelihood <laughs> of things happening has not prevented us from talking about them. Good point. Which, speaking, speaking of, of is a good segue to our, our completely preposterous NCAA tournament prediction since we have no idea <laughs> what the brackets look like. And by the way, I should just say, since we're on a frivolity subject, dear listeners, including our listeners in China... Uh, we heard from three of you. That was pretty cool. I hear you. We did not talk about The Wire in our discussion <laughs> of best TV dramas. And I, I think that was an omission, an unfortunate omission. I don't think it changes my assessment. But, of course, The Wire, which, by the way, Bobby, last episode was 10 years ago today. Really? March 9, 2008. Yeah, I, I'm totally down with all everyone who said, like, come on, how can you not talk about The Wire? As I said, like my Omar coming. The, the only thing I was really committed to in that discussion was the idea that the sort of the, the novelization through long form yep. television, and obviously The Wire is a premier example, yep. is is a great American art form. That's really um, that's the thing I like above all. And it's and it's pushing the networks to do nothing but reality television. So yay for all of us. All right. Um, so frivolity. <laughs> so listen, here's the real problem. I, I think we should both suggest who we think are the four teams most likely to make the final four. With the caveat that it's entirely possible that they will all end up in the same region, um, and that we just right, don't know right, that right. as we're recording it. So I'm going to go first, okay? Um, just to give you time to, right, to push back. Me. This is a weird year for college basketball. I do not think Virginia's record aside that there is a dominant team, and okay. I don't think that there is a clear favorite going to the tournament. I think with every one of the top 10, 15 teams, it just depends on who shows up. I will say the best. Team, like teams playing at their best, the best I have seen. I hate to say this because I cannot stand them, but I really think that if they're playing at their best, the best team in the country is Duke. I was wondering if you might say that. Because Marvin Bagley is just a freak of nature who, I mean, I just, watching him when he's healthy and when he's bouncing all over the court, when he's jumping over everybody, it is just hard to imagine that a Duke team playing anywhere close to its best is going to be stopped. So I'm, Duke is my first pick for the Final Four. Okay, all right. Um, so my second pick, I'm biased, but my second pick is also a team that is playing much, much better than its record indicates, um, as reflected in its Big Ten championship, which, thanks Big Ten, is going to be like 12 days before they have to play another game. Yeah. Um, I'm going out on a limb and going with Michigan. 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 Hmm. Um, right, the Big you, Ten are, you are out on a limb. I'm out on a limb. So Duke and Michigan are my first two. Um, man, the other two, this is hard. Um I think we'll get one of those two Big East teams, Xavier or Villanova. You know, yeah. I, I could see one of them finding a way to make a little run, get to the the, the final four. Um, and for the fourth team, you know, I just don't know. So I'm just going to go crazy. Um, <laughs> Your wild card is? I think the best team that no one has watched play this year um, is Wichita State. Um, Shocking. I know. You would say that. Even though they lost to Cincinnati and didn't get the top seed in the AAC tournament. I just, you know, Wichita State, they play, they're, they're, they're you know, they're, they've been playing together for a while, battle-tested, good guards. The tournament always has a way of finding a, a smaller school mojo. So um, so that's my final four, right? Duke, Michigan, uh, Xavier Nova, um, and Wichita State. All right, so I think UVA is more legit than you're giving them credit yeah. for, and I think this could be their year to get at least to the final four. So UVA's in there, and that'll be my my. I'm tempt, I'm really tempted to throw in another ACC team. You know, I used to teach at Wake Forest. I have a, a <laughs> love for ACC basketball, but I'll limit myself there. Um, I do think Michigan State will be will get really in there. Yeah, wow. Michigan State's going to go. Sparty. Sparty's going to be there. Um, and then to be do, a little do, more. Do I, do, I was going to say, do I pick any non-chalky teams? In this? No, no. Well, I'm, that, so that's that's my baseline. Yeah. Now I think Purdue. 
Purdue. Like the Boilermakers are going to make a big Indiana so, run. So you were picking two Big Ten teams, yeah. neither of which won the Big Ten tournament. That's right. Okay. And, and you picked Michigan, so I think we all like a little, little <laughs> odd there. Uh, and then uh, and then my my real wild card, the Wildcats, Arizona. Uh-huh. All right. So a Pac a Pac twelve team getting in there. Uh, 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 what's it? What's his name? Uh, uh, oh shoot, what's his name? Uh, Dan, no, no, the, the really good guy, Aiton, De- DeAndre Aiton. I just think that they're they're rolling at a good time. Uh, as far as the Big 12. Ah, guys, okay, so that old chestnut. Drink. Um, I think, first of all, after last night when Texas lost to Texas Tech. I still think they're in. We might get in because I think the, the most important thing in that game may not have been that we won or lost, Mo but Bamba that Mo playing. Bamba played. And uh, so the chance to have this future NBA star. I mean, they beat West Virginia when everyone knew they had to to get in. Yeah, yeah. And they beat Kansas State when everyone knew they, or Iowa right. State when everyone and, knew they had to get in. And we in. nearly knocked off Texas Tech again last night. Texas Tech's a very good team. They easily could have won that. Right. Kind of blew it. And I think it, I think Texas gets one of those first four 11 seed play on yeah. Tuesday. Deals. I don't see us going anywhere. Um, <laughs> but there's there. Uh, the Less confidence. I, I don't see Tech going anywhere. The fact that Texas has proven able to beat them tells yeah. me all I need to know about that. Yep. Uh, Kansas is is a machine. I think the problem Kansas faces, they just don't get pushed hard enough because because they've been in this sort of class of one for so many years. Yep. And so during the season, the, the conference schedule, as good as the Big 12 is, it's sort of really broad at the second tier, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I'm a little doubtful Kansas is going to get be able to crack my predictions and get in that time, that Final Four. But grade 8, sure. Uh, so so all that Big 12 talk and you're missing the, the other top team in the Big 12? Here you can, West Virginia. No, we're doing okay. a college. What's that? Where'd you go to college? Well, TCU got knocked off in the tournament. There I know, but they're a good well. team. Look, I, I love TCU, and obviously, and go Frogs. I, I think they're certainly going to get past the first round, but I, I, I'd be a little surprised. Now, remember, TCU is early on its project here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Coach Dixon's been amazing turning that program from basically a complete backwater program into into a real competitor. I think over the next two or three years, you're going to see them going really deep. All right, so you've got Virginia, Purdue, Michigan State, and Arizona. Yeah. And I've got Duke, Michigan, Xavier Nova. I'm just cheating there. Cheating there. Uh, and Wichita State. All right. And um, we both have Texas getting in. And we both somehow. have Texas getting in and, and, and coming home quickly. Perhaps. We'll see. All right. So Monday, right? We'll see, we'll see, if, we'll see if, if we get knocked out on Monday just that's because right. like two of our teams are in the same bracket. Exactly. All right. Well, I guess that's it. Everybody have a great spring break if you're in that mode. And if you're not, um, you know, we'll, we'll talk to you soon. Happy Monday. Back. Hope the world is still there. Uh, stay safe out there. Adios.